0: Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies, and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the Podcast. Welcome to episode 127 of The Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the humble Badoka Gottlieb.
1: Hi, Gerald. How are you? This lovely week.
0: Straight out of Champions of Kamigawa block he comes this week.
1: Yeah, with Shroud, I believe. Is it old Shroud or is it? It's it's not Hexproof, right? Just can't be the target of spells and abilities. I don't know, man. I can look it up. (laughs) <laughs> I love that I ask you about some obscure card that you should never even waste your time knowing. Every single week, that's the result of these names. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Just gri- no. This one. This one's in reference.
0: Go ahead. No, Grizzly Bear was shroud before it was shroud. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. Uh,
1: no, this one's in reference to an ask we made over the last few weeks. We've been asking people to go ahead and head over to iTunes and leave a review for the game podcast. And the response was overwhelming both in number and in some of the content we got back and we're ready to finally go ahead and read some of these i wanted to share them with you they meant so much to me reading through so many people had so many positive things to say if you ever want your day brightened just ask people for reviews of something you make and get to read like what your content has meant to them and man is that just a total game changer and some of these in particular I'm telling you, I got a little emotional reading these. Let me read this first one. You'll see what I'm talking about. This one comes from Goblin Guy, and the title of his review said, Change My Life. This title isn't a lie or clickbait, but simply the truth. I've been playing competitive magic for years, and I had always struggled with not achieving the success I felt I deserved to see for all the time, money, and energy I was committing to the game. Because of this, I viewed myself negatively, not in just my magic life, but it was hurting my relationships with the people I loved the most. On an episode not too long ago, Jerry and Brian decided to answer every question they received from their Discord server. We should do that again sometime, by the way. Agreed. Uh, I asked a question along the lines of how can I come to terms of not achieving the success I feel I deserve? I wasn't sure what the answer I was going to get, but inside I was desperate for someone to alleviate the weight I was putting on my shoulders and all the anxiety and stress I was putting on myself. Brian and Jerry were very firm in their response and gave me quite the wake-up call. They told me that no one deserves success and there's never enough practice or learning to be done. Long story short, the game podcast completely changed my perspective, not just on magic, but on life in general. I no longer put extra pressure on myself to succeed or be someone I'm not. Now I practice for every event with the goal to improve instead of the pressure to win every match. Don't get me wrong, I still want to win, but this perspective shift has helped me focus on what truly matters to become a better magic player which is the only goal I really care about at the end of the day. And because of this mental shift, I feel better about who I am as a person. My relationships with people and the game have improved tenfold. In the four months or so since that podcast, I've made the top eight, three out of four local 1K tournaments that I've played and made day two of my first GP. Thank you, Jerry and Brian, for not only helping me grow as a magic player, but as a human being as well.
0: Straight up. That That's is crazy. It's incredible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Th- there's times where like, I think about the path my life has taken, and I have a moment of hesitation, right? Because I was in this career that seemed to have a lot of success uh, lined up in front of me, and there's a lot of prestige, and I was doing very well and really carving out something for myself, and I gave it all up, and now I talk about magic a lot. And even as much as I love magic, there's moments where I'm like, did I do the right thing? And then I read something like this and I'm just like, yep, I broke it. Like, I wouldn't trade this for anything. The fact that we had this kind of impact on someone's not only magic playing, but their life as well. It's really jaw dropping. Awesome. Thank you, Goblin Guy, for sharing that. I hope things continue to do well. I hope you continue to improve in life and the game. And I am psyched for you. And uh, it really means a lot. You took the time to write up that review for us.
0: So when when I started making content, it was basically just because I knew that I had a lot of information that I wanted to share, and I also wanted to get paid to do magic-related things, you know? Sure. And over time, that shifted a lot because I would get responses sort of like that one where it's like, hey, you know, you helped me succeed in this whatever endeavor it was, whether it was like FNM, PTQ, GP, whatever – And I, I started to realize that like that sort of stuff meant a lot to me. And then just over time, my focus shifted from actually like competing myself and trying to succeed myself to trying to help others because of reviews and stuff exactly like that, where it's like, there is basically nothing better in the entire world than to get that kind of feedback you know totally at the agree. same time we could be doing so much more and be so much better at our jobs and everything so like we're we're still also going through like this constant learning process and yeah man uh that is that is basically all i want to be doing with my life and it, it's weird as a content creator because you don't necessarily see the impact that your work has on people you know like i know that of course i know that maybe like 20,000 people listen to this podcast every week and you know 10,000 or whatever, read my articles on Star City. And I have almost 40,000 people following me on Twitter or whatever. That's a lot of people. And I say a lot of stuff and I put a lot of stuff out there and I got to imagine that some of it has an impact for better or for worse, you know, and you very rarely hear about the better, but then it, you know, you get like one every month or every two months or whatever. And it just gives you like the energy to keep on going. So yeah, Goblin Guy, thank you so much. Uh, I I remember doing that show and I remember that question. And uh, if I remember, I remember, if I remember correctly, I think that we were probably like a, a little like peeved by that question and a little upset about it.
1: Right. And, you know, I think that if Goblin Guy went back to the same point in time where he was asking that question, he would also be peeved at himself now that he's seen how much there really is to do, how much there is to learn. And uh, you realize how unhealthy that mindset is. And don't get me wrong. I held that mindset for a very large period of my life. So I'm not going to begrudge anyone for coming to us with that kind of question. It's just something you have to learn. And when you do, you're like, oh my God, I wasted so much time with these negative emotions. They were worth absolutely nothing. Uh, And I'm glad that Goblin Guys turned that corner for sure.
0: Right. And he had enough foresight to actually just ask the question in the first place, enough self-awareness to realize that that was this thing that was just like crippling him, not only in magic, but in mm-hmm. his day to day. Right. And I think that yeah. that takes a lot like that, that already tells me that you have the the capability, like the blueprint for improving and understanding what's going on and how your actions affect those around you and stuff like that. So like kudos for making that change too, because it's like very easy to hear what our response was and just be like, oh, screw those guys. You know, They don't know me. They don't know what they're talking about.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do have that response quite often, but not Goblin Guy. He was hasty to make a change. You see what I did there? Yes. Hasty, Jerry. Yes.
0: I've I played some okay. with Goblin Guide this week. <laughs> I okay. get it, man.
1: Good. I'm, I'm glad you're getting your Goblin Guide reps in.
0: I was actually disappointed. I 5-0 a league and it didn't get posted.
1: There's something weird going on with the the posting algorithm, where some decks seem to fall out of the uh, the group of posted decks. I mean, I don't know if yours was supplanted by another burn list. But, it was. Uh, it was. I've definitely, yeah, I've heard stories of like amulet doing a five zero and then just not showing up anywhere in the the list of decks. So what? What's the conspiracy? There.
0: They're they're yeah, trying, I'm trying to, to keep
1: those primeval titans down.
0: Yep. Uh, so the the next review is. Very nice and, and makes me feel good, but also at the same time kind of sad. And I, I think that it's it's written in kind of like a tongue-in-cheek tone, which I, I took it as. And it I, I liked the the writing and how it seemed humorous, but also very depressing. So this one comes from Green Five. And they say, I wake up every morning in a bed that's too small, driving my daughter to a school that's too expensive, and then I go to work for a job which pays me too little. But on Game Podcast Day, well, I like Game Podcast Day.
1: <laughs> I do like that understated presentation, right? A lot, uh, <laughs> quite a bit. And thank you for sharing. And I hope that your bed gets larger and your job gets better and your. are Daughter's school gets cheaper. I think is the other one we have to deal with, or or she graduates. Uh, you know, like sure, yeah, gradu- that's fine too.
0: Graduates, gets a good job, maybe becomes a lawyer. Actually enjoys her job and makes a bunch of money. That's pretty unlikely if she becomes a lawyer.
1: But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's some chance. Find a better profession, child. Do something besides lawyering, and uh, I, I think you'll definitely be able to help your dad get a, a nicer bed and uh, a job he prefers a little bit more.
0: All right, we got we got a third one. Yeah.
1: We do. We do have a third one. Uh, First of all, we only chose three. There were so many we could have chosen. Thank you everyone for stepping up and doing these reviews. It really does mean a lot. But those of you whose reviews we did read here, make sure you get a hold of Jerry, shoot him a DM over on Twitter, and we'll get you some swag for taking the time to to help us out and uh, post over on iTunes. But the final one comes from unhappy Katie, who says game is a must listen. If you play or want to play standard or modern at a competitive level, listening to game is a must. The podcast and its relentless pursuit of the truth about each format not only informs the listener, but also undeniably shapes the metagame. Perfect for a drive to work, some listening time on a road trip to a tournament, or when lying in bed after Cedric Phillips poisons you, this is a podcast that no spike should miss. Unhappy Katie, that's exactly our target audience, drivers, uh, tournament goers, and People who have been poisoned by Cedric Phillips, which is an ever-growing list as we know. So
0: yeah, and can can confirm it is a good listen. Even even when you know like Cedric's on the podcast and he poisoned you, it's still it's still pretty reasonable. Right. You, know?
1: you still manage to power through it and enjoy his presence and f- somehow forgive him deep in your heart. Yeah, I don't know about that. I'll get him back one of these days. There you go. That's that's the spirit. So that does it for our reviews. Thank you all for. Contributing for helping us out, it really means a lot to us. Maybe we'll do this again sometime in the future, and we'll definitely do one of those question episodes again. That's been a long time coming. Uh, and last time we did what, like a three-hour podcast just answering questions?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm in to run it back.
1: Yeah, I gotta I gotta rest these vocal cords. Give me a, a week off, and then I'm ready to go. Oh, Let yeah. Cedric poison me once, and then I'll come <laughs> in and, and do that on the next week.
0: Well, I I got this MC to test for, and then I have to you know, go to Richmond and then I'll be home after that. So we can we can do it in a couple weeks. Very nice. All right. So on to real things. Uh, We have almost the entire set list for War of the Spark, which is very exciting times. And Mm -hmm. I think we'll have the rest of it by next Monday or so. Is that, accurate? that sounds
1: right to me, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And then we'll be ready to do our, our top 10 show, of course.
0: Yeah, and I honestly think that we could probably do the top 10 show now. But we're going to cover the rest of these previews. And uh, it is only official previews. There are some other cards that have been leaked that we could talk about, but we're just not going to do it. We got uh, some negative feedback last time the fact that we didn't separate them and uh that is completely understood like next time if there are leaks we'll put them at the end of the episode or something so that people who don't want to subject themselves to that uh do not have to and so this time since there's only like three or four cards that we were going to talk about we're just not going to do them at all so all this stuff is officially spoiled just so people have the heads up and uh yeah just consider that my my spoiler tag on facebook or whatever speaking of which i have not watched game of thrones yet i've been too busy Um, I, I
1: heard it was good. My wife enjoyed it quite a bit. I gave up on game of Thrones. I I read the books first and I was just like, this is too brutal for me. I'm kind of a wimp, Jerry. I don't know if you know (laughs) about me, but like violence and bad things happening to people. It just bums me out, man. So it's not for me, but I'm glad people are enjoying it. It sounds like, uh, they have returned to form quite nicely.
0: Okay. That's cool. I mean, we can, we can talk about the whole you being a wimp thing offline, I guess. I have some thoughts on that, but all right. Uh on to the I would say white cards, but there's only a single white card worth talking about, in my opinion, and that is finale of glory. Uh X dub dub uh mythic sorcery. Create X22 white soldier creature tokens with vigilance. If X is 10 or more, also create X44 White Angel creature tokens with flying and vigilance. Brian, what are your thoughts on this cycle of mythics? Like if X is 10 or more, how are you making this much mana? Are these just commander cards? If they are commander cards, why are they taking up mythic slots? What is the deal? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're commander cards
1: because the front sides carry some like okay rates for the most part. And I think this one, a little bit lower than some of the other ones, Uh, but even still like X is three, six, Power and toughness w- across three bodies, which in white can often be a benefit, splitting up your power and toughness. That sounds pretty good. And then it starts to scale really dramatically after that. Find top deck in late games. If you ever do hit 10, probably just win the game, assuming there's no wrath forthcoming. So
0: that's 12 I think mana, are, though. It's
1: not even just 10. Mana. It's, an inc- it's an incredible amount of mana. And I don't think most decks are ever going to get to that point. But it's interesting to have options that scale, I think in instances where ramp strategies are viable, having versatile options that you can fill in your top end with that are both like stop gaps and win conditions, it's really useful. Now that usually only applies to like one or two cards where you're looking for those kind of modal applications. And here there's a cycle, which is weird. I'm assuming the cycle is more like this needs to be here for storyline reasons, which I mean, I still don't quite understand what's going on with this story. That's fine. That's not really for me. But I, I think these are very important moments. And maybe that has as much to do with their mythicness. And then they kind of need to have a kicker to them. And that kicker is somehow X is 10. Uh, we'll see if this is a large mana world we're heading into, if there's going to be good ramp stuff going on in the future. It really isn't now. Ramp options are actually pretty bad for the most part. But these cards are all interesting, and most of them are at least worth consideration in certain roles.
0: Well, I look at three mana for a two, two, four mana for 2 two twos, five mana for three, six for four. Like, none of those rates are particularly good. And then obviously, if you have 12 mana, you're getting a whole lot of power. But is that better than literally anything else that you could be doing? Like, I don't think so.
1: With 12 mana? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I feel like I'm just going to pass on this card, especially because we have cards like Usher Assemble and March in the Multitudes. And like, granted, both of those are Selesnya cards and not just mono white cards. But like this thing isn't even an instant to like block things in combat, you know, so you're not even getting any value there. So I don't know, man, I'm not seeing it.
1: It's a weird one. And I, I think like it has to have for this card to be good. It has to have a split function. It has to be a stop gap and then a win condition. And you have to be happy with both of those. And it's like... You know, if you ramp turns two and three and then play this as your blockers and then you stabilize some other way and get to the late game where you top deck this and it's just your win spell, that sounds okay to me. But this is a very specific application of this card and it's one that doesn't really seem to exist right now. So I do think you're right. This will sit the bench for the time being. I think there's a potential role, though, given how other cards break.
0: Gotcha. Uh, next card uh, moving on to the blue cards, we have Finale of Revelation, XUU, Sorcery, Mythic. Draw X cards. If X is 10 or more, instead shuffle your graveyard into your library, draw X cards, untap up to five lands, and you have no maximum hand size for the rest of the game. Exile this. So almost strictly better Brain Geyser. Technically, you can't kill your opponent with it, but this is, no matter how much you cast this for, you're not going to lose as a result of it because of the shuffle your graveyard thing in. So Kinda cool, but are we living in Brain Geyser World?
1: I remember when Brain Geyser was restricted and <laughs> just going back a very, very long time ago. But again, I, I just think there's so many better options. And as you do the thing where you scale through the turns and you think about this for five mana, and you think about it for six mana, and all of those are okay. I mean, at least in this case, there's realistic scenarios where a control deck just sits there with. 12 mana in play and wants to just cash in and spend that mana to find whatever answer they need in the moment can immediately cast it because they've untapped five lands. So there's something there where it, it is potentially doing that scaling thing that we talked about with the white one. Uh, but the front side, kind of mediocre in most instances. And again, you usually don't want to be tapping out, and this requires you to in all instances. So it has to be a different look of control deck. They're not going to look like the typical builds with absorb and things like that but again if there's big mana strategies these type of options are very very useful to bridge the gap between win condition and just getting to that point
0: right the the problem is being able to find a deck that actually wants to do that sort of stuff and Uh, A couple seasons ago, we had Hour of Promise, which I think was uh, a a pretty big enabler for those sorts of decks. And especially with like the cool desert mana base. And we don't really have a whole lot of that sort of like either enablers or payoffs, really. So I don't know. Again, not really seeing it.
1: There's like Chromatic Lantern stuff, but even those decks don't ramp particularly hard. They just mostly fix mana. Uh, There are some new... There's a new ramp artifact in this set. I believe that's officially spoiled now. Four mana yeah, fu- can produce too vessel color. Right, mind Vessel. So there, there's that. Maybe that opens something back up. But we'll see. That sounds a little narrow to me. It does play into that whole five-color vibe. So maybe there's some ridiculous meme deck based around all the revelations or something like that. But probably not a tier one competitor as it stands right now. Especially because there's other good options uh, in these colors. And that's one of the themes we keep coming back to with the set. So many options. There's just powerful, powerful cards all over the place.
0: Right. And you have uh circuitous route, firemind vessel, gilded lotus, stuff like that. But like circuitous route and the gate sort of stuff, it seems like already does this a little bit better. And then you want like expansion explosion, hydroid crisis. Like you already have these X things, these big X spells that are good payoffs that I think are stronger yeah. than these finales that we talked about so far. I think you're right. All right, next blue card, Narset, Partner of Veils. One UU, Uncommon, Planeswalker, Narset, five starting loyalty. Static ability is each opponent can't draw more than one card each turn. And minus two, look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal a non-creature, non-land card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order.
1: Feels like for this card to be meaningful, you need to break the synergy like of of some other card some kind of howling mine effect where your opponent doesn't get the benefit that's a little cute and probably again not standard playable the minus two is fine like you really don't want your three mana planeswalker to work super hard to be able to be a divination i guess and granted you're getting some selection but there's deck building constraints to get access to that consideration and you may be leaning into them with augur bolus but Narset doesn't play particularly well with Augur because it's not an instant or sorcery for that count. So uh, pretty underwhelmed by this Narset. I don't see it doing a lot going forward.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I don't know if this is meant to be a specific hoser for anything or if it's just like, okay, well, you have this sort of hoser there if you end up wanting it. I'm kind of floored by the impulse being restrictive, too. It's just like this card seems so weak already that I'm kind of surprised by that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, look, there's going to be weak planeswalkers now, right? That's part yeah. of their new MO. Some of these are going to be limited fodder, and then some of them are just not even going to be good and limited. And I don't know if Narset goes that far. I'm sure it probably has a role, but it doesn't seem super impactful to me.
0: Yep. Agreed. Next card is commence the end game for you. You rare instant. this spell can't be countered. Draw two cards, then amass X where X is the number of cards in your hand.
1: Uh, This seems much better than Finale of Revelation. I love that it's an instant. I love that it can't be countered. I love that it generates immediate battlefield presence. I think when you start thinking about this as like a Moldrift replacement, it gets pretty exciting. You're not going to play a ton of these, but this seems like a pretty safe include in a lot of spots for a control deck. Think about like playing this end of turn, getting a couple cards in your hand and being able to pressure a Planeswalker immediately that's a really nice play pattern I like. So this seems like a card that's going to have some role in just standard control decks. And then if you want to build around a mass a little bit harder, uh, you're doing something with our quote unquote new bitter blossom, then maybe you can start to lean into those synergies a little bit. But on its face, I think this is just a fine card.
0: Yeah, I think this card is dope. This is, this is yeah, six mana, six, six moldrifter drifter or whatever. Like That is kind of, you know, the floor with it, really. Like, I think you're going to be amassing for larger amounts than that a lot of the time. And especially when in combination with things like Dreadhorde Invasion, like you talked about, it gets that Lifeling trigger on it almost immediately, too. So it's like those cards were just made for each other.
1: Yeah, I see them being played in combination quite often. I think also it's very easy to underestimate how important it is to put in a threat at instant speed. There's obviously blocks you can do mid combat. Like it's never going to be safe to attack into six mana again, which is really game altering. Quite frankly, think back to the effect that things like Mistbind Click can have. uh, Torrential Gear. Sure. Yeah. It's exact same spot. Good point.
0: Yeah. So I like this card a lot. I don't know exactly where it's going to slot in, but it's probably going to be a few different decks. And even if you're playing something like Saltai and you want something that's like a little bit stronger against control or whatever, like this is a pretty nice campy counter threat.
1: I could see that. Yeah. And it also gives you play at instant speed, which is a big deal against that deck as well. So
0: good point yeah, for sure. Next card is God eternal Kefnet, which was sponsored or not sponsored, but previewed by Cedric Phillips. And mm-hmm. it, it, it pains me. How did, how did he get one of the good ones? Uh, this is to you, you, Legendary Creature, Zombie God, Mythic Rare, 4-5 Flying. You may reveal the first card you draw each turn as you draw it. Whenever you reveal an instant or sorcery card this way, copy that card and you may cast the copy. That copy costs two less to cast. And the normal God text, when this dies or is put into exile from the battlefield, you may put it into its owner's library third from the top. I think this card's very strong. I
1: think it is too. But I think it's strong for reasons that maybe people aren't quite grasping. It, it's more strong for its body than anything else. Like a four or five flying body is a very, very big deal. And if you get some additional value out of the trigger, that's all gravy. I, I think that like, this isn't a control finisher. Obviously you want your cards to be proactive and you want to be doing things in things like blue, black, mid range. It seems to get a little bit better to me uh, where you just cast your removal spell off the top. That's very nice. So I anticipate this scene, some amount of play. There is also combo potential with this card. It seems pretty thin to me, but you do like Riverwise, Augur, Karn's Temporal Sundering, Kefnet, and you get to take all the turns. Now you're playing with some pretty bad cards there. But anytime there's an infinite combo, I am always interested. You never know what you can make out of it. And Kefnet has one attached to it while just having, again, a very reasonable body. So I think if this card finds the right home, it will be an important player in standard. It just doesn't slot everywhere. Like it needs to go in a very specific deck. You need to be interested in being able to attack with a four or five flyer. Doesn't feel like a control card to me. I don't know. You're looking to slot this into like existing Esper builds or do you see this creating its own archetype as it goes forward?
0: So if those decks are interested in like a four mana, five, four flyer or four mana, four, five flyer, then I think this card could potentially slot in there. But realistically, I think it fits much better in a deck that has more proactive stuff. So obviously if you hit any sort of card drawer off this, that's fine. But I want to hit like lightning strikes and rouse outbursts and stuff like that. And spot removal, I think is fine too, but it's also possible that, you know, you just start the turn. They don't have a creature on the battlefield or they don't have the right type of target. You know, maybe you have like a Vraska's contempt or something. And it's like, well, sure, I guess I'll get to kill your 1-1 one, one or whatever. That's not really a big deal. But right. if you have, like, you know, strikes and outbursts and stuff, it's like, okay, you can use that to kill Planeswalkers, kill good threats. You can double up your lightning strikes to then kill bigger stuff. You can just go to the face with your outburst, like, and that takes advantage of you having a 4-5. So I like that sort of plan. But just in a traditional, like, counterspell-heavy control deck, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. Thought Erasure is another one where, like, just casting two thought issues on the same turn, it's pretty brutal. It's very hard for opponents to be able to survive that kind of uh, card quality swing in one spot. And obviously you cast the first one. If there's no need to cast the second one, you just skip it. So I could see this seeing a lot of play in both red-based decks and black-based decks. I, I think it fits very well in either of those. Like you said, the more reactive spots, probably not going to be a home for God Eternal Kefnet. Uh, if you get the infinite combo to work, more power to you! I would love to see some of that going on.
0: Yeah, all right. I'm I'm brewing. I got I got the wheels turning. Don't worry. I'll have a deck list nice. for you at some point. Beautiful. All right. Next card is Tomio's Epiphany. Three U Sorcery Scry two or Scry four, then draw two cards. So 4C reprint.
1: Yeah, uh, this is fine. Like there, again, there's so many options right now. If you're wanting, if you want to do this at sorcery speed, uh, it'll be quite good. And 4C was a meaningful card for sure. Uh, I feel like most decks interested in this kind of effect generally want it at instant speed more than they want the scry four, but that changes where there's like combo potential. And we keep talking about different forms of combo that exist in this new set. We just talked about one, which is relying on all blue cards, need some specific things to happen, need some specific cards on the top of your deck possibly so you can bury it down under the two cards you're going to be drawing. So Tamiya's Epiphany does something, that's for sure. And if you can find applications where you're not super concerned about having mana open, maybe this slots in.
0: Yeah, I think this kind of goes hand in hand with God Eternal Kefnet, where obviously you'd want this in a deck that doesn't have a whole lot of counter spells, and you're more Mm -hmm. interested in having like a quick burst of card selection and card advantage than the long game power of Chemister's Insight. So something like Grix's midrange comes to mind, where I could see Tommy's Epiphany slotting into that deck more so than Chemister's Insight would.
1: It plays beautifully with Kefnet for sure.
0: Uh, Next card we have is Spark Double, which you wrote an article about already. This is 3U, Rare Creature Illusion 00. You may have Spark Double enter the battlefield as a copy of a creature or planeswalker you control, except it enters with an additional plus one, plus one counter on it if it's a creature. It enters with an additional loyalty counter on it if it's a planeswalker, and it isn't legendary if that permanent is legendary. So... Cannot clone your opponent's things, but I think that this card is pretty strong. Yeah,
1: so that's a weird limitation and not one that clones usually have. And it presents some problems for sure. Like if your battlefield has been dealt with, your spark double is always going to do nothing, which is not what you want your card to do in your constructed deck. But I do think there's enough upside here. And I don't know if people are sleeping on this card or there's just so much going on that it hasn't been something that's talked about, but Having two identical Planeswalkers on the battlefield can actually break pretty quickly in a lot of instances. Uh, and then legendary creatures. There's there's good legendary creatures, not only in this set. Obviously, there's like, what is, is it? Roll-esque? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. The, Apex the Hybrid. simic flyer. Yeah, the Apex Hybrid. And then you go back to Prime Speaker Vanifar, where you can now pot up a second copy of your Prime Speaker and get some chains going. Spark Double starts to look pretty exciting. Uh, I think it's a narrow card does what it does and it does it very well and we'll have to work to find homes for it it's not just an auto inclusion the way some past clones have been because of that limitation but i still think this is a card worth paying attention to because it's doing some new stuff in the clone space
0: yeah spark double with vanifar is pretty interesting because you might think that if you untap tap with vanifar once you just like win the game or whatever but you're Accruing very small incremental advantages. And then if they draw something to deal with your Vanifar, then you're just kind of back to square one. You know, you're up like a Mm -hmm. little bit of value. But yeah, this way you get to insulate yourself a little bit where now you just have two Vanifars and things start getting out of control. So I like that idea a lot.
1: Vanifar picked up some good targets in this set as well. There's the God Eternals for one, which I think are interesting. There's also uh, Massacre Girl, which is kind of a wrath that they can now tutor up, which is pretty exciting. So Interesting, interesting times for Ranifire, a card that always seemed like it was just on the cusp of maybe getting there.
0: Maybe now's the time. We'll have to see. We will see. Last blue card is Silent Submersible. UU for an artifact vehicle, two, three. Whenever Silent Submersible deals combat damage to a player or planeswalker, draw a card, crew two.
1: Pass. The hardest possible pass. I, I just don't think this card does anything.
0: I keep looking for evasion on this card
1: and i'm not seeing it nope it just sits there on the battlefield a big dumb submarine which are there submarines in this world i i guess so it doesn't make a lot of sense to me but here is one and uh, i don't want it in my deck i don't think this does anything at crew one maybe you could like trick me into playing this but at crew two it's just like i, I don't know what this is supposed to be doing right now quite frankly
0: I think that if there are ways to actually get this through, obviously it's very powerful. And this, I don't know, could maybe be a sideboard card against control out of mono blue or something like you, you talked about how the red vehicle could be good against them because it's not, it's immune to sorcery sweepers, you know, and Mm -hmm. the, the third toughness means that it doesn't die to like moment of craving. So if they're maxing on that stuff, but man, I'm I'm there if it had crew one. And that's I think that's I know. the whole problem with this
1: card is that crew two just doesn't do it for me.
0: I know you have so many pilots that only have one power, right? right? So it it still doesn't even make a whole lot of sense for that deck. And they're also, you know, boarding in hostage shaker and stuff like that. So not only does it right. just take the submarine, fake submarine, but they can just block it too. So I don't know. It Yeah. It has this powerful text. Through, it has powerful text, but probably not very good.
1: I'm with you. Uh, I I think we missed one too, as we moved through the blue cards, uh, Narset's
0: reversal. Oh, we did. Yeah. My, my bad, my bad. Go ahead. Hit us up with that one. This is UU rare instance found it. Okay. Uh, copy target instant or sorcery spell, then return it to its owner's hand. You may choose new targets for the copy. What do you do with this one?
1: I am still processing this one and trying to figure out exactly what we're supposed to be doing. We can win counterspell wars, so that's fine. Stealing removal seems okay in a lot of spots. They'll get to cast it again on the next turn. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what we're doing with this one yet. I, you know, it's got like an aspect of remand to it, like it's remand-esque in a lot of ways, but it doesn't feel like it's ever going to do exactly what you want it to do. And remand can hit creatures and artifacts and a bunch of other stuff too. So I, I think this card probably is just a miss. But maybe you can tell me I'm thinking about it the wrong way.
0: I don't know. In counter wars, this is basically just unsub, right? Mm-hmm. So that's not particularly powerful. I mean, you're you're better off just with something like a negate, unless you're in really crazy stacks where they have like two counter spells targeting your one thing, and you want to like bounce one and copy one and counter the other. So it's just right. kind of ridiculous, right? So I'm thinking about like. You know, Karn's Temporal Sundering, I guess, where this is basically just like a fork, except you also have to pay the cost for the card the next time you want to cast it or whatever. It's like that. That's not even that good. So I don't know, man. It, yeah. I I find it difficult to actually think that this is like remand quality when you're very, very, very unlikely to actually get a card from it. You know, it's it's the same problem that Unsub so had. It's a nice response to Nexus of Fate, I'll say that. Like, getting your own Nexus of Fate is pretty good.
1: You just cost your opponent 7 mana. But that's a little narrow, and I don't think this is going to see play just based on that, right? Like, you you need more.
0: Yeah, you better kill them on that turn.
1: Right, because otherwise they're casting (laughs) Nexus of Fate on the next turn. Yeah, I I don't know. People seem very hyped about this card, and I wondered if maybe I was just thinking about it the wrong way. But I, I think it's a little too narrow to actually get the job done.
0: Yeah, this is, this is one of those cards where it's like, okay, maybe it could be good, but I'm not seeing the application for it. So I'm kind of in the same boat as you, but I also feel like we've seen weirdo things like this and the fact that there aren't a lot of applications that are apparent and common and the fact that they're all corner case means that it's very unlikely that this is actually going to show up anywhere.
1: Hmm, I can agree with that.
0: On to the black cards. We have Finale of Eternity. XBB, Mythic Sorcery. Destroy up to three target creatures with toughness X or less. If X is 10 or more, return all creature cards from your graveyard to the battlefield. So, uh, against White Weenie for three mana, you could kill three X ones, which seems solid. But realistically, you're probably going to have to be X is two and then... You're looking at like Ritual of Soot territory and the... Mm -hmm. And worse than your Cry of the Carnarium, which you could have been playing in the slot. Right. So obviously, you know, scaling super long, you could kill a bunch of Steel Leaf champions with this thing, but very, very expensive.
1: Yeah. Again, modal nature of the card makes it interesting for the fact that in those scenarios you're describing where you do get to pick off like 3-1-1s, it's going to feel pretty insane. And you still have a slot... In the late game, that can just clean up everything for, you know, some ridiculous investment, probably four to five or seven total mana once you pay for the BB cost. So uh, is that good enough? Probably not. It doesn't strike me as particularly good. Also, the deck I'm describing right now, it doesn't feel like it's going to have a huge amount of payoff on the X's 10 side. And also, it doesn't feel like it wants to get to the stage where you're doing the X's 10 stuff. I don't think this replaces Kaya's Wrath and Esper. I don't think it replaces Cry of the Carnarium. I think that you have to, this needs a certain metagame before it's really, really good. And I think we're pretty far from that metagame. And I think this will just be too blank in too many spots. Against decks that go bigger, you're going to hate having this card in your hand. So again, for the time being, passing on Finale of Eternity, recognizing its nature to be explosive should the mana get out of control.
0: Well, I will say the scenario where this outpaces Cry of the Carnarian by a lot is if you are also a creature deck and you're looking for like a plague wind type of thing. Like if there's okay. some some small black creature deck, black uh, aggro, yeah. Yeah, then then yes, you can take out like three white creatures, keep yours around and at that point it's better than Ritual of Soot too because Ritual of Soot would kill your own stuff. So in that sort of instance, I kind of get it. I don't know if this is necessarily like a Sultai card, but Yeah, I could I could see this like, you know, X equals three or whatever, killing your opponents, three things and you keeping your battlefield. And maybe that's a thing. But given that there's like a lot of mono red, a lot of mono blue, where this card is not necessarily very good against them, that I find it hard to believe that those scenarios will come up. But who knows?
1: No, that's a good use for the card. It's a good, good pickup. But uh, still... That deck doesn't exist as it stands right now. Didn't see a huge amount of ads for any type of mono black aggro. So probably not is my guess.
0: Nah, but it could be like, you know, white black knights or uh, red black or something like that. Maybe aristocrats type of thing. Like th- there are other black creature decks that aren't necessarily just mono black. Right. And they're all no, fringy. No, they're all fringy for sure. But yeah. Anyway, next card, Deliver Unto Evil to be rare sorcery. Choose up to four target cards in your graveyard. If you control a bolus planeswalker, return those cards to your hand. Otherwise, an opponent chooses two of them, leave the chosen cards in your graveyard and put the rest into your hand. Exile this. So, this is graveyard gifts ungiven with uh, a weirdo kicker if you have a bolus.
1: Cool card, incredible art and i think probably pretty useless uh the fail state is painful many times this will do absolutely nothing it's punisher in some ways without the insane selection that gifts ungiven carries with it it's sorcerers i mean there's just a ton of knocks against this card and unless we're doing something very very specific with deliver on the evil i'm not really interested and I mean, maybe I'm thinking about it wrong and we're just supposed to work super hard to make sure we do have a bolus and we're just drawing four off our three mana sorcery. But even then, we have to have put four cards into our graveyard at that stage in the game, which is not a guarantee. Like that's just not how games necessarily play out, especially in a world where like there are no fetch lands. So there's not just this constant churn going into graveyards. So I don't think this card is particularly good. Uh, Tell me why I'm wrong.
0: I don't necessarily think you're wrong, but I do think that it's cool that it's not separate names, right? So if you have four Vraska's contempts or whatever, it's like you're you're getting the thing that you want. Right. However, I do think it's just very difficult to put cards into your graveyard in standard, especially like n mass of things that you actually care about. You're relying on like explore and surveil and search for ascanta and stuff like that. There's no like mass amounts of actual self-milling. There's like Stitcher supplier and like some of the blue cards, right? But yeah, for for the most part, I'm not really seeing this. I guess I'm kind of curious to see what I could do with this alongside Arclight Phoenix because there were some, I think Madness built like a three-color Vicious Rumors one when, yeah, when GRN came out when like Blood Crypt was legal and stuff. And it's like, maybe this is like the cool, you know, draw to you that allows you to always bring back a Phoenix or whatever, and there's some self-milling stuff where, like, maybe you could put another Deliver unto evil into the pile, which means that they're probably not going to give you that, which means that you're kind of locking up, like, you know, two of the other three or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. Like, you're, you're getting two cards for three mana, which is just divination level quality or whatever. We can do better than that these days. But there's... A non-zero guarantee that they're like all reasonable spells. So I don't know. It's it's something I'm I'm gonna look into and play around with, but I don't expect it to be, you know, just like completely bust out or anything. Sounds right to me. All right, fine. On to the elder spell. BB sorcery rare. Destroy any number of target planeswalkers, choose a planeswalker you control, put two loyalty counters on it for each planeswalker destroyed this way.
1: This card is wild because if you asked me to cost a spell to destroy all Planeswalkers, I probably would have, on default, costed it like three or four mana. Right. And for for only two mana, you get to destroy all Planeswalkers, and you get upside. And then you stop and think about it for a minute, and you're like, well, wait, is this actually even that good? Like, how often does this matter? How often are there going to be multiple Planeswalkers in play? Uh, I think the answer is not that often. I think this is probably like... A good sideboard card to function as a good check on a world that could get out of control with planeswalkers. If there was just a backbreaking super friends style deck, maybe the Elder Spell is the answer you're looking for uh, and makes it really hard for that deck to exist. So this feels more like a safety valve than an actual meaningful card that's going to be slotted into a lot of decks, just because. It's going to be dead in a lot of instances. You need to make sure this card is live before you can play it. I mean, this is probably like a casual dream card, right? Every commander player is salivating over the Elder spell, but over in the constructed world, I think this is probably just a very niche sideboard option, but it does a great job of being a super exciting card without actually accomplishing all that much, which is, <laughs> which is cool to see.
0: Yeah, even if this is just a hero's demise for Planeswalkers, where it's like I sideboard one copy of this in my Gris's midrange deck or whatever... I think that's perfectly reasonable. I Mm -hmm. highly doubt that there are going to be worlds in which, you know, they play a Planeswalker, I have this, and I don't cast it immediately. I mean, maybe I give them time to develop their board a little bit, maybe play out a second Planeswalker while I, like, play out mine first so that I can get some value from this thing. But realistically, I think I'm just going to use this as, like, one for one to kill a Planeswalker if I happen to have... A Planeswalker of my own on the battlefield, cool, that's that's extra bonus points. Like, that is probably an ultimate right there, which I think is really right. strong. But I don't think, at least right now, like last season, there weren't a whole lot of decks that you could sideboard this card against necessarily. And I agree with you. going forward, that might change, right? I mean, we do have – we have a lot of Planeswalkers in the set. Some of them are pretty decent and – Even if they're like borderline enough to see play, it's like, okay, I'll play one small Vivian or one Jang or whatever, you know, in my green deck, it's like, okay, then the versatility of this thing goes up by a lot, right? But I I still don't think that you're ever main decking this, but yeah, if you do get to kill something and then immediately ultimate your Angrath or whatever, it's like, yeah, that's pretty tight. You could also try and like combo on your side of things
1: and like play a deck loaded with Planeswalkers, use your Elder Spell to fuel up ultimates on one of them. And right. I, I don't know if that's actually going to be a thing. That feels a little silly to me. But you know, if we are given the right ultimate and you know it's game winning, then that's fine. You can look into those type of things. And if you have enough support up and down the curve for reasonable Planeswalkers, which are like good defensive options and can protect themselves, then maybe that deck can work out. So... And a really interesting card, a really cool card. But like you said, probably destined to just be a very niche sideboard application.
0: Yeah, but that's fine with me. I mean, I I like killing planeswalkers. I like black mid range decks. Like, let's do it. Sure. Next up, we have Spark Harvest. B, Sorcery Common. As an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice a creature or pay 3B, destroy target creature or planeswalker. So I think I would have been happy with Bone Splinters. And this is nice yeah
1: this is a good little ad. Uh, I, I think like this is mostly here for the limited environment, but where your deck has fodder, um, and we've talked a lot about the amass mechanic and we've certainly explored a lot of token based decks and there's tons of you know creatures which hunted witness type effects where they generate a second creature. So I, I think Spark Harvest is a good enough card to see some serious play. Uh, It's nice to have two modes to it. So you can just use it as an expensive spell in the late game. But if you're killing like a Teferi, you don't mind paying five mana to do that. So, yeah, this is a cool little print. Happy to see this one.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Next up, Bond of Revival. 4B Sorcery Uncommon. Return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. It gains haste until your next turn.
1: Uh, this is an upgrade of what we usually see on this type of effect. Getting one of your creatures hasty could be a big deal. There's like the boar god, which certainly loves to make a quick attack. So nice to see possibly viable reanimation spells. It feels like they've kind of languished a little bit as of late, but I don't see anything I want to go all in on this with quite yet. Uh, five mana is still a lot for a reanimation spell. Usually you're not getting huge discounts, and. I don't, there's no like huge, like Eldrazi style threats that you're really looking to bring back here and just take over the game with. So probably not going to be a huge player, but always good to have reanimation options. Nice to have diversity among our standard decks, and maybe someone can make this work.
0: Yeah. Anytime there's a thing available where it it makes you think a little bit, it makes you build a deck around it, creates maybe some sort of sideways strategy that didn't exist before in the format. I like it a lot in... I don't, I don't think there's any sort of Eldrazi or whatever. It's like Galta, the Boar, and maybe those are in the same deck. I don't know. And mm-hmm. then even just like exploring this away or surveilling or exploring or surveilling away a Carnage Tyrant and then using this on that in Sultai or something, it's like that is, some, yeah, nice. that is some sort of dream that you could live, right? Like Carnage Tyrant is pretty nice with this card.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Maybe this has a role of just where there's key cards in a matchup like Carnage Tyrant, things which are you know, certain matchup haters, you get additional copies by playing bond of revival in your deck and speeding them up a little bit might be exactly what the doctor ordered.
0: Yeah. And I, I do think it's tough because the format has a lot of very, very good counter magic and thought erasures and stuff like that. It's like pretty tough to actually make this sort of thing happen, but still mm. reasonable. Yeah. Last black card. We have God eternal bond three BB mythic legendary creature, zombie God five, six that's big menace. When this enters the battlefield, sacrifice any number of other permanents, then draw that many cards. When God Eternal Bontu dies or is put into exile from the graveyard, you may put it into its owner's library, third from the top. So you can potentially draw a lot of cards with this, but I don't know where you're going with that.
1: It's a good question. And I I think it's like a curve topper for something which is creating a wide but small battlefield. And when that battlefield is eventually bricked, you get to cash in a huge portion of it for this God Eternal add a bunch of new cards to your hand the problem is at that point you're just adding more of those same small creatures to your hand so i'm not sure where the leverage point actually lies like you can't sacrifice all your land because you need to be able to cast the spells you draw with god eternal Bantu. so interesting interesting card again we talked a lot about a mass and the creatures which double up this plays right into that but it feels a little not game changing, I guess, which is weird for a card that can draw you like three or four cards off the top of your deck and present some battlefield presence with a five, six menace body. But for five mana, I think we just ask more of our cards right now.
0: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, compare this to Teferi to or, or Vivian Reed, obviously not in the same colors or anything, but like that is the sort of thing that you can get for five mana. And for this, I feel like you get a reasonable body. And you cash in like, you know, maybe an extra land, maybe you have some dinky 2-1 Murpho branch walker chilling out there that's not doing a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And in in like the super late game, if you have like 10 or more lands, it's like, okay, well, I'll sack the five lands I used to cast this and whatever other crappy permanents I have in play. And it's like, all right, well, now I know for sure that I get to do something else on this turn. But like obviously you can't play this with like hydroid grasses or anything like this, like, like like you said, you basically need this at your top end, which I think is probably pretty reasonable for like a mid-range threat, but there's also a lot of competition at five mana. So is this the best thing you could be doing? I don't know. I don't think this will necessarily see play in Aristocrats style decks because they don't necessarily want to go up to five mana. But even this just sacking, you know, the one one that you made off of uh, Dreadhorde Invasion for the turn and like sacking extra land or whatever. It's like, that's still reasonable value.
1: Yeah, not an awful card in that state. And uh, I mentioned Vanifar before, like you can see scenarios where getting this would just be uh, exactly what the deck needs because you'll you'll get this and then you'll have all your mana open to immediately deploy whatever you draw. Uh, so that's a pretty big upside. Maybe a one of there, certainly not what the deck's going to be built around, but it'll be interesting to see if that's a reasonable option for the Vanifar deck.
0: Yeah, that's another one of those cards where if you untap with Vanifar and you pod this thing into play, you're going to have enough gas where even if they kill your Vanifar, they're still probably going to end up losing. So I do like that. You would think so, yeah. Oh, yeah, you would hope so. All right, on to the red cards. We have Finale of Promise, XRR Sorcery. You may cast up to one target instant and or up to one target sorcery from your graveyard, each with CMC X or less without paying their mana costs. If a card cast this way would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it instead. If X is 10 or more, copy each of those spells twice. You may choose new targets for the copies. So most people have been like, well, X is one. You target sleight of hand and opt or whatever, and you bring back your Light Phoenixes. Isn't that great?
1: No, that's, that's not great. I mean, it, it works. I'm not saying it doesn't work, but uh, you do not want this card anywhere near your Light Phoenix deck, I don't think. I think it's a little bit mana intensive. And you generally just want to fire off your cantrips for one, and you don't need any help getting back your arc like Phoenix's. That's why the deck is so good. So don't play meaningless cards like Finale of Promise. Uh, What is very clear is that they are not at all afraid of giving people the capability to cast the Time Spiral cards from graveyards like we, we just keep seeing all these different ways to cast those cards without waiting for their suspend cost, ancestral vision, uh, living end, that whole lot, restore balance. And it continues to not really matter. Electro dominance is getting closer, but not really getting anywhere. I don't know if Finale of Promise changes that equation. You could look at new living end setups where you're just like trying to get the living end into the graveyard as well and self milling yourself as opposed to doing a ton of cycling. So interesting to see if that's anything to look into. But yeah, I don't know. It just feels like either you have to find something broken for this card to do, or again, it's just asking for the proper setup to be in place to get the appropriate payoff. And that's too risky. You just want to be more consistent than that.
0: I don't know. I was talking about the Bolus's gifts card or whatever, and I can see one or two of these in like standard Arclight Phoenix decks, but... I don't know how like you would you would have to play like crash through and warlord's fury then, which you might not want to do in the normal blue red one. So this this is again like me thinking about like black red base or whatever. But that doesn't mean that uh, maybe those decks have enough uh, stuff to actually be reasonable. But yeah, as far as modern phoenix decks, I don't really think so. If you do play something like this, you're you're going to play like one copy. You're not certainly not going to load up on these. And then as far as like the self mill living in thing i don't know i, I i've actually tested like the blue red as told thing a decent amount and i like that deck i think it's pretty good does it need this tool
1: does it benefit at all from having access to something like finale of promise
0: i think that this is a, a different deck like you said because it, okay. it, it has to be in the graveyard right and that's just like a completely different right. thing where the only way that deck gets it into the graveyard is if you've already cast it once or, you know, they make you discard it or whatever. So, like, it does give you more redundancy or whatever. But it is kind of nice where it's like you need, instead of needing electro dominance and Living End in your hand, you just need this card in your hand and to put a Living End in your graveyard, which I think is probably easier. But then that sort of makes you a bad dredge deck. So... All right. That's true. <clears throat> so, yeah, I don't really like that approach, but we'll see. I mean, I, I do think it is cool that these sort of things exist. And, you know, like we, we've gotten as foretold, we've gotten electro dominance and now these decks are starting to see play and stuff. And I do think that aspect is really cool.
1: It's wild how much fear there was the first time we found a way to cast those cards reliably and everyone was like, Oh, modern's broken. This is going to completely take over the format. And now it feels like every set we get a different way to enable those time spiral cards. And they've become old hat at this point.
0: Yeah, but I I don't know. I feel like there's also not a lot of people working on them. So that is kind of a distinction there where, you know, maybe a good version of those decks, either Restore, Balance, or Living End, will pop up at the MC in a couple weeks, and we'll see.
1: Yeah, always a possibility.
0: Next red card, spoiled by the Dragon Master himself, Brian Kibler. Sarkin, the Masterless, 3RR. Rare, legendary Planeswalker Sarkin, five starting loyalty. Whenever a creature attacks you or a Planeswalker you control, each dragon you control deals one damage to that creature. Plus one, until end of turn, each Planeswalker you control becomes a 4-4 red dragon creature and gains flying. Minus three, create a 4-4 red dragon creature token with flying.
1: Well... I I mean, I guess we get to dredge up the M19 Sarkin again, which is a card that I know both you and I have continually played and been disappointed by every single set. So we get to do it in combination with this Sarkin now. And I'm just not sure exactly what this card is doing. And in a dragon-based deck, your five mana slot is probably already pretty spoken for. I mean, granted, this generates a lot of battlefield presence very, very quickly, uh, essentially over the course of... Just a couple turns, you're going to have a flying army that will kill your opponent. But you should for this amount of mana investment. And I just don't think like this is what those decks have been missing up until this point. There's there's something wrong with the dragon archetype. It cannot be made to work. I'm convinced. I'm, I please don't make me waste more time on Sarkin at this point. I've spent so much time
0: with M19 Sarkin, and it just continually disappoints me. I will say that. Uh, M-19 Sarkin is not something I've been disappointed with. It has mostly just been the the rest of the shell surrounding the card. But Sark- sure. Sarkin but is... The, the
1: decks I build let me down every time. That's what it comes down oh, to. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, but we have a lot of good Grixis cards in the set too. So I do feel like maybe Sarkin the Masterless isn't the card that you want to use to try and reinvigorate those archetypes. But maybe it's just like, you know, getting better removal and better creatures and spells and stuff like that. Whereas Sarkin, it seems like the plus one is like huge payoff potentially for Super Friends deck where you can play a bunch of the cheap planeswalkers and try and protect them. And then it's just like Sarkin actually turns them into threats, which I think is cool.
1: Yeah, that's nice. Maybe just one shot your opponent even if you've set up enough battlefield presence, Yeah, uh, which is pretty cool to see.
0: I, I don't think the rider or the static ability on Sarkin is gonna be doing a whole lot because if you have a bunch Such of a weird one. If you have a bunch of dragons, you're winning already. I mean, yeah, obviously it stops like a horde of small things from attacking you or whatever, but yeah. Yeah, only picking off
1: those X1s for the most part. Plus one is very cool and I like it as a, a win condition. That's very nice, very cute with your super friends deck. If you're igniting the beacon, you can just have a sarkin sitting around ready to kill your opponent at will. I don't know exactly what that deck is going to look like right now, but someone's got to try it with all these options. And maybe this is the key. Just having a one-shot kill is going to unlock that archetype. We'll see.
0: It's not going to be me.
1: Yeah, I I did my part. I put out a very early deck list. Uh, I think as time has gone on, there's just too much other powerful stuff for me to really return to that idea. Uh, And I think the pace of the format is going to be such where it's going to be hard to set up those kind of super friends battlefields have succeeded in the past.
0: We need like a Sylvan
1: Advocate or something. Some, some two-drop that's great. Yeah, a good defensive two-drop would go a long way. You know, Augur of Bolas missing Planeswalkers is really what did in that as being our option. Oh, and yeah. I, I really haven't seen a replacement yet, so.
0: Nope. All right, on to the green cards. We have Finale of Devastation, XGG, Mythic Sorcery, Searcher Library, and or Graveyard for a creature card with CMC, X or less, put it onto the battlefield. If you search your library this way, shuffle it. If X is 10 or more, creatures you control get plus X plus X and gain haste until end of turn. Dude, it's Green Sun Zenith. It's back. So, this is the real interesting one. And I I don't think
1: Green Sun Zenith is back because (laughs) it's not. Extra mana (laughs) is an incredible, incredible amount. But I, I do think this is a lot closer to just being a good card than a lot of the other options. I think like toolbox decks are going to appreciate this. Again, we talked. A lot about vanifar and there's a version of green decks that just like basically play with your deck in your hand between finale of devastation and bioform and prime speaker vanifar there's something where you can just get whatever you want at all times uh i also think unlike every other green card which everyone immediately proposes for amulet this one is actually somewhat interesting in one of those flex slots just because you can hit that 10 mana threshold pretty easily uh, and just win the game on the spot with like plant tokens which is cool
0: yo Uh, you can't suggest this for Amulet while just poo-pooing on Zakama all the time. That doesn't make any sense.
1: Well, for eight mana, this also gets a Primeval Titan. So that's less than nine mana. So I can, in good faith, suggest this one. You can't. Um, and, and also, if you play Zakama, you could use this to go get your Zakama for the low, low cost of 11 mana, which I'm sure you'll be super excited
0: about. Great. So I only have to put two 10 drops in my deck.
1: No, but this this isn't that bad. Like getting getting a tribe scout for three mana is tolerable in some instances. Getting Azusa for five mana just unlocks you in some spots. It, it's not the deck's not going to be built around this card. Where there's a flex slot, though, I do think this is a reasonable consideration for what it can actually accomplish.
0: That all sounds heinous. And now all I want to do is get Greensun Zenith unbanned so that y'all can put it in an amulet because I think that would be sweet.
1: That would be, I mean, really, really exciting. The
0: one mana ramp spell would be
1: pretty ridiculous.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You get a Dryad Arbor that you can just pick up with Karu's and you have like infinite two mana Sakura Tribe Scouts, which I think is fine. You have more copies of Azusa. I think four mana Azusa is palatable, but five mana is too much. It's a lot more. I, I will concede that. And
1: I think that's what people miss a lot of the time in looking at this card. It's just like, oh, it's Green Sun Zenith. Well, we got to pump the brakes a little bit. And all those scaling numbers really do make a big difference. So I do think there's something to be done with this card. I think it's closer than the other finales. Uh, but let's back off a little bit on the new Green Sun Zenith thing, because uh, I've heard a lot of that going around.
0: All right. Well, in, in a similar vein, let's talk about Bond of Flourishing. 1G Sorcery. Look at the top three cards of your library. You may reveal a permanent card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. You gain three life. Oh, you mean the new ponder? Is that what you want to talk about now? <laughs> no, it's it's upside, man. You gain three life. Uh, yeah, The this, better
1: ponder, I'm sorry. This,
0: this card is so offensively bad. Tell us why it's so offensively bad. It's two mana and two is double one mana.
1: That is accurate. I can contest none of these points.
0: Uh, So I I only put it on this list to poo-poo it so that people would not put it in their decks because two mana is very expensive. Think about uh, like Board the Weatherlight or Shimmer of Possibility, Mm -hmm. stuff like that, where Mm -hmm. a a two mana search spell is just too much mana to be spending to just accomplish very little. And tacking on gain three life is cute. And you're going to trick some people, especially, you know, because the last decade of magic has been just talking about how busted cantrips are or whatever. And right, they're one mana cantrips, folks. Those those are generally the busted ones, not the two mana ones.
1: Yeah, and I think also I've seen discussion of this card index where like it's going to have a fail percentage. And granted, that fail percentage isn't high. You know, I've seen propositions where this would have like a ninety percent hit rate, and that sounds mostly okay. But like that ten percent of the time where the card already wasn't very good on its face, and now you've added this ten percent fail rate yeah people a little overhyped about bond of flourishing as well. I don't know. I, you'd really have to have some scenario where that three life mattered a ton and by playing this card, you probably cost yourself that three life. So I don't think you're gonna get there for the most part with bond of flourishing.
0: So wait, so you're you're saying that you probably cost yourself the three life. So does that mean that the three life basically pays for the two mana that you spent so that this basically costs zero mana?
1: this is very creative math, Jerry. And I think that's exactly the type of math it requires to get into your deck in the first place. So we'll see if people are going down that road.
0: Yeah. And, and for those wondering, not only does this only hit permanence, which is like already not, if your deck is full of permanence, you don't necessarily need cantrips, right? Like what you're trying to do is just like curve out basically and and do your mm-hmm. battlefield presence thing. And comparing this to Augur of Bolas, where like, the 1-3 body is actually worth more than three life by a lot because you're you're stopping a Sky Marcher aspirant almost, you know, not indefinitely, because eventually it's gonna get pumped or get the city's blessing or whatever. But at the very least, you're you're gonna be able to like use this to jump block something and gain three life at some point. So the one three body is worth a lot. It's blue you're gonna be able to put it in decks with lots of spells and you're gonna be looking for specific spells like either card drawing things that you need or removal spells that you need specifically. And that card is just so much better than this one. And yeah, Bond of Flourishing is just really offensive to me. I don't like it.
1: That's our first, uh, I think, hated card of this set so far where you know you're gonna see a bunch of it in lists coming forward and it's already making you cringe.
0: I'm gonna have to click on it too every single time. So it's like I'm I'm going to forget that the card exists because it's never gonna be on the forefront of my mind for when I'm constructing my own decks. And then right. someone's gonna propose this list. I'm like, oh, did I miss something? And I click on it, it's just like, damn, it, <laughs> that card again. Got him again. Yep. Last green card. God eternal Ronus. Three GG. Mythic Legendary Creature Zombie God 5-5 Death Touch. When this enters the battlefield, double the power of each other creature you control until end of turn. Those creatures gain vigilance until end of turn. And when this dies or is put into exile from the battlefield, you may put it into its owner's library third from the top. It's pretty easy to imagine some
1: really explosive God Eternal Ronis draws out of the mono green decks. Yep. You know, if you are doubling your Steel Leaf Champion's power uh that gets out of hand very very quickly do they need that option that's what i'm not really sure of like does it matter that they now have 10 power as opposed to five power generally if you have a battlefield and are attacking you're bigger than everything anyway but there are spots where like sizing is going to matter a lot and obviously in those spots god eternal aronis is going to bust the game wide open certainly if like green stompy decks were part of the meta god eternal aronis would be a sideboard option in a lot of instances I don't know if those decks are part of the meta. There's a blue-green stompy list that's been kind of beating up Mythic over on Arena that is getting some play, and maybe they'll be interested in including a copy or two of God Eternal Ronus. I I don't know exactly what slots this is competing for. Like, Is this trying to force out Galta, or what exactly is it doing? What's it replacing? That's a big part of the question that has to be asked here. And, And there's other options too. There's the Apex hybrid thing that you can play in this spot, which is a little bit more Safe from removal, I guess I would say, and not so much a, a one turn shot. So we'll have to see if Ronis gets a shot. I have a feeling there are decks that will appreciate this card.
0: So I already thought that leading into the Mythic Invitational, that basically mono green was the best best of one deck because you mm-hmm. had very good matchups against a lot of things, and if nothing else, like you could just race them. But you also had a few open slots in your deck where people were playing like Biogenic Goose because it was like slightly better against White Weenie or whatever. And I think this card is just way better than that. I ended up splashing Collision Colossus in those spots just basically to win races. And I think Ronis does a lot to help that. I mean, obviously people can still chump block or whatever, but as far as like getting over bigger creatures, this allows you to trade up, which certainly accomplishes some of that. And even if you don't end up winning the game that turn, you have this 5-5 Death Touch left around. If they kill it, if they kill it, then okay, whatever. Like you're just going to redraw it up in a few turns and like have that kind of overrun effect again. It not having trample, it not giving trample like these are things that certainly make it much worse and like not quite an overrun. But I do feel like, you know, Steel Leaf Champion doubling its power if they if they don't have a blocker like that is very relevant. And God forbid you have a Galta already like that. That's just game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And 24. Take that. And you're, you're saying like, oh, like if you're attacking, like you're probably doing fine. But there are, are a lot of scenarios where people set themselves up to win the race. Exactly. Right. It's like they leave behind enough blockers and like maybe you turn for Galta or whatever, which is not unreasonable. It's like kind of the middle ground. And then this throws off the math for them by a lot. I think this will mm-hmm. do the job of Collision Colossus probably like a lot better. And the fact that you could play Adventurous Impulse to find this and help hit your land drops and stuff, that's also nice. But I ended up cutting that card for Nullhide Ferox, which was also pretty good. But, you know, I mean, you can you can find ways to uh, include this in your deck only as like one or two copies, still find it pretty reasonably and use it to good effect, I think.
1: Yeah, you could play copies of like Bond of Flourishing and go looking for this. Gun, yes, right?
0: yes, exactly. <laughs> Nailed it. No,
1: I think this is, this is a cool print. And uh, we'll see if this pushes mono green up a tier. I think that's the question.
0: I think it was already there in best of one, man.
1: Yeah, you know, we didn't really talk about it just because your Mythic Invitational didn't go the way you wanted. And I don't know if this is just me being biased or what. I kind of feel like you just nailed it. Like you had awesome decks for that tournament and it just didn't work out in your favor. And the story just became, you know, basically mono red, mono white Esper. And that was the entire tournament. And you had two really unique decks that I think actually were just excellent choices.
0: Yeah, I think I crushed it. I mean, I I basically, I could have 3-0'd Wyatt, you know, had I known card interactions in game one because I just straight blew that game for like six turns in a row, which led to us running low on time and then me losing right. in game three when I had enough time to kill him or whatever. I won my next two matches pretty easily. And then I lost to Jess who had Boros Angels and Team Wreck. And I got not only like the, the worst matchups, but like she played well, she drew well. Like uh, if, if anything, like her lineup was a thing that like I did not want to face. And she had one of the the weirder lineups in the tournament, you know. But yeah, for anyone right. playing Esper Mono, Red I think that they did a horrible job like just straight up, I'm, I'm just going to say that they did a bad job of testing for that tournament and and my lineup would have crushed them. Nice. Like a little confidence,
1: <laughs> even, even in defeat, still confident. It's good.
0: Well, I, I basically 3-0'd, right? So I, I should have been in top 16. That's how that works.
1: Sure. I'll, if you want it, I'll give it to you. That now, works for me. The
0: the thing I'll say is that it's it's messed up. The, the time limit thing existed and that they didn't tell us what the time was or where the clock was until we had two minutes left. And we're going into Game Three, and then for the next d- for the next day, they up the time limit by fifteen minutes.
1: Yeah, that's not great. Which y- was not a a great look on the broadcast, where you were just playing, and then everyone just kind of put their hands up in the air, and nobody knew what was happening. Like yep. the I don't think the the casters had any idea what had just happened. Yeah, man, they didn't and- have a timer. <laughs> It, it was wild. But uh, yeah, unfortunate circumstances. I don't, I don't know why we've come back around to this now after all these weeks, but it, it was something I wanted to pick your brain on back at the time. And no. it just kind of slipped out under the excitement of War of the Spark.
0: Yeah, I, I think that was kind of the problem is that I was going to write a tournament report, like an old school one. I think it would have been really good and really fun. And I took a bunch of sweet pictures and had good stories and stuff. But then the war previews all started, and it was like, yeah, no one's really going to care about this. And no one's really gonna care about best of one all that much. But yeah, I, I think my story for that tournament is pretty interesting. And I think I did a, a good job, and now Duo Standard is dead anyway, and you know, who <laughs> <Right>. cares? <laughs> Thanks
1: for the work. Good good effort, but uh we're done with that.
0: Yep. On to the gold guards. Oath of Kaya. One B dub legendary enchantment. When Oath of Kaya enters the battlefield, it deals three damage to any target and you gain three life. Whenever an opponent attacks a Planeswalker you control with one or more creatures, Oath of Kaya deals two damage to that player and you gain two life. This card is nice. Yeah, this is this is a nice answer for Esperodex
1: against Mono Red. This is going to be a challenging card for them to beat in a lot of instances. Kill your best threat, gain three life, and when you attack my Teferi in the future, I will gain two more life. Like All that stuff adds up pretty dramatically over time. Nice card. Nice little print. I, I don't know if it's a main deck card. I think it's probably a little bit more of a sideboard option. Could go into that moment of craving type slot right now. But good little card to have around.
0: Yeah. Th- I mean, three mana lightning helix is perfectly reasonable fine. because yeah, obviously fine. like two mana instant speed lightning helix was just way above rate for the time. And this this seems completely fine to me. Uh, like three mana sorcery speed is not necessarily something Esper wants to be doing. They could play Augur this too, which this doesn't really work with, but I'm actually kind of surprised that we got a good oath because we haven't seen one in like since Oath of Nyssa, basically, right? No, it's it's been a minute. And I'll say
1: this too about like Esper again, not wanting a main deck, but a lot of times with post sideboard configurations against Mono Red, you've cut a bunch of counter magic and you're more comfortable playing tap out. So I think that fits right in with that plan. Again, it remains to be seen if these are even decks post-rotation, everything's going to change. So we're talking about things in kind of an old context, but regardless, this is just a fine option for a bunch of decks to have. And uh, you can even go face if you're somehow a white, black aggressive deck that wants this
0: card. And that's kind of cool too. Yeah. Or kill a planeswalker with it. Whatever. It's just super versatile. Sure. Yep. Uh, Next card is Golgari. Casualties of War. Two BB, GG, six mana total. Uh, rare sorcery choose one or more destroy target artifact destroy target creature enchantment land planeswalker
1: well this does a lot i guess uh it's very expensive i don't think existing soul decks would necessarily sign up for this Uh, this really depends on like what you're trying to answer how many of these permanents can you realistically pick off i don't know how high that answer is going to be actually Uh, This is answering a deck that may not exist yet, I feel like. Yeah. And maybe this is just like the super best of one card where no matter what they're doing, you have some outs to it. So maybe this gives Sultai a little shot in the arm in that format. I don't really think that's the issue, though. They weren't looking for a six mana removal spell. So this is probably a pass. Interesting card, though. Interesting we keep going down this route of very modal spells.
0: You know, the the one card I found in best of one that actually does a good job of beating opponents who play permanence for six mana is carnage tyrant. So mm. I, I don't think I'm super interested in this because you can just play hexproof dino and kill them anyway, but it is pretty sweet to have a card that can like kill creature land Answer and planeswalker. Everything. Yeah. So yep. there are, there'll be some fun stories with this one, I think. Sure. Yeah. If you ever get the five for one, you just feel on top of the world. I like this card in limited. Oh yeah.
1: Don't everyone play against this limited. That's going to be miserable.
0: All right, now I am searching for Tamiyo. Tamiyo, Collector of Tales, 2GU, Rare, Legendary Planeswalker Tamiyo, 5 Starting Loyalty. Spells and abilities your opponents control can't cause you to discard cards or sacrifice permanence. Plus one, choose a non-land card name, then reveal the top four cards of your library. Put all cards with the chosen name from among them into your hand and the rest into your graveyard minus three, return target card from your graveyard to your hand. I like this card, actually.
1: Oh, I like this card a lot. And I hope you didn't want any more combat steps, Jerry, because I'm going to have fogs for days. I'm going to have fogs (laughs) coming out of every single orifice in my body. I'll just be vomiting fogs onto the battlefield. Uh, I even wrote a little bit about Spark Double, copying Tamio, and then you essentially have this unending engine of fogs that just are produced from your graveyard this feels like a card that is ready to go in simic nexus style decks i think that the regrowth effect is very very good uh, especially in those setups and then you're searching for your nexus of fates as well like looking at your top four you essentially get another search for askanta activation this card is just bonkers in those decks and there's probably just fair applications of it as well, like some kind of band Control type stuff. I messed around with uh, Wilderness Reclamation-based band Control. This card would be right at home there as well. Uh, you have to name your cards carefully. You have to know what you're looking for. But I think Cameo pays some
0: big dividends. Brian Go chooses Nexus of Fate. Brian Go chooses Nexus Every of Fate. <laughs> Brian Every Go chooses time. Nexus of Fate.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe a Fog in the right
0: situation. We'll see. Yeah, maybe. Sort of Nexus, Nexus of Fate is the best Fog and you know it. Mm, that's true. Yeah, you can't get thought erasured. Uh, there is Liliana's Triumph, but in like right. pl- playcrafter I guess, but there's not a whole lot of sacrifice effects that I can think of. Priest Forgotten Gods, maybe. The plus one is interesting where like you have to name a card and there's the hit rate on this has got to be super low unless you're doing very specific things like you know, you have a 20 card library and four of the cards are nexus of fate or whatever. Like, obviously that's really good, but the rest of the cards go to your graveyard. If you do hit multiples, you get all of them. Uh, So Mm -hmm. there's, there's some value to be gained from the plus one, even if you're missing, which I think is nice. And then Tomio goes up to six loyalty, which is a lot. And then you get to double eternal witness if you want. I mean, I think this as a four mana planeswalker is pretty reasonable in Sultai, I wouldn't load up on them or whatever, but it's like, I'm, I'm certainly willing to try one or two copies and see how it goes from there.
1: Yeah, I could buy it in Sultai. You have a lot of powerful options there. You know, in the late game, looping your Hydroid Crisis is always going to be your default game plan. And I, I don't know. This seems like a card that, This feels like it could have fit in in the old era of Planeswalkers, which is like the highest compliment I can give a Planeswalker right now, where it feels like if you don't effectively answer Tamiyo, it can take over the game very, very quickly. Regrowth effects are powerful, powerful stuff. And uh, you're often getting multiple uses out of your best cards in certain matchups. And I I think Tamiyo is 100% seen playing Simic Nexus and may even inspire some more building around the card itself.
0: Yeah, agreed. Uh, Next up onto Demir, we have Soul Diviner, UB, Rare, Creature, Zombie, 2, 3. Tap, remove a counter from an artifact creature, land, or planeswalker you control. Draw a card.
1: Well, I have a problem with this card. Hit me. So my friend Connor was out visiting me this weekend and because he hates me, he informed me that if you have a soul diviner and a devoted druid in your graveyard and a necrotic ooze, you can then draw your entire library. So obviously I have now lost my next like 10 modern tournaments as I mess with that. But no, seriously, this is a, a cool little value card. I love the third point of toughness. It makes it realistic that this card could stick around a little bit longer and do some blocking duty. I'm not sure exactly like what we want to do with this. And I also am curious, are there situations where you can benefit from taking away the counter that we're supposed to figure out? And that's where this card really goes insane. What are you doing with Soul Diviner right now?
0: Uh, So I'm writing my article on this this week, actually. And I'm like in the middle of doing this as we record this podcast. So I I think I've built five shells for decks with this card. Uh, One thing to note is the creature types where it's a zombie and a wizard benthic biomancer is also a wizard so it gives you like a little Mm -hmm. engine to abuse there and you get to play wizard's retort alongside those cards so i think those two cards just in general can spawn like you know a tempo deck or even like a kind of small bally control deck and then obviously this in simic has a bunch of counter applications doing a lot of like proliferate stuff putting counters on creatures whatever Uh, if you want to use this alongside treasure map, you could, it's not ideal. There's blast zone, which we'll talk about in a little bit. There's, there's a lot of different stuff, man. And I don't know, I don't think that it's like busted or anything. I just think that it's like a really nice value card, but it is pretty exciting to build around.
1: Yeah. I think it's a a fun one. I think it's hard for these cards to stick nowadays in modern magic. This feels very much like you said, small ball. And when I think small ball, I think relics of the past for the most part. Like there's a lot of huge impact spells in this set and in standard in general. So can you make something like Soul Diviner work? Well, the synergy you pointed out with Wizards Retort is a good first step to that. If your opponent's going huge, you just counter everything they do. You know, is this the best way to do it versus something like just mono blue aggro? Who knows? We'll have to explore that. But this is a fun one. I I really like this card a lot. uh, And I'm looking forward to seeing what, what you come up with to do with Soul Diviner.
0: Yeah, me too. I got maybe like 10 more hours to finish this article. So yeah, maybe a little bit more than that. So yeah, we'll we'll do our best and come up with some sweepers. Next, Demir card is Ashiok Dream Render, one H where H is either blue or black mana. Uncommon legendary planeswalker Ashiok, five starting loyalty. Spells and abilities your opponents control can't cause their controller to search their library. And minus one target player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard, then exile each opponent's graveyard. Ashiok is my favorite Planeswalker of all time. Have I ever shared that with you before? I think so. I I think OG, like three-mana Ashiok, was awesome.
1: Love that card. I think it's just one of the best designed Planeswalkers, just in terms of coolness and in terms of its impact on games. This Ashiok, however... I just don't know. People are over the moon about this card, and I don't get it. It basically only has one line of text. The minus one isn't always going to be super impactful in a ton of matchups where they just don't care about having access to their graveyard. And then the search clause feels like it comes online too late. Like I'm seeing people talking about this card seeing widespread play in modern. No. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? I don't even think this is close. And then when it comes to standard, you're not shutting down anything with the search clause. So it's not going to see play there. And then I see people talking about playing Dark Ritual and ramping this out on turn one in Legacy. And I'm like, fine, but what about the decks that don't care? And there's tons of them. So I just don't think people are being realistic with how blank this card is in so many situations. When it's good, it's going to be fine. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if some decks pick up a single copy of Ashiok in their sideboard for specific matchups and it wouldn't surprise me if the mill deck plays this card because the mill deck is terrible anyway so it can basically do whatever it wants but it's mill deck like
0: mill deck yes, is the mill deck mill deck is fine mill deck will not play this if they can't search you can't trap them that is stupid and th- that is very true a 3 mana Hedron crab is not going to do anything you're also shutting off like your crypt incursions your surgicals like oh, basically all the cards that the mill deck Uh, relies on to be playable in modern, you know, like it's, it's just not real. Sure. Uh, Okay. There you go.
1: So honestly, I hadn't given a ton of thought about how this fits into the mill deck. I saw the word mill and I'm like, well, if anyone wants it, it must be this deck, but you make good points. And that just basically closes the deal on Ashiok as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I don't know why people are so high on this card. I mean,
0: maybe it's like, they like Ashiok like I do, but I'm
1: not letting that cloud my judgment here.
0: People like hate cards and they like answers, and it looks like Ashiok does that, but generally the answers that you end up actually playing with are things that are a little bit more versatile and not just three mana things that say players can't search, but they can still attack your Planeswalker and then search. You know, it's.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Your hate card gets killed in this instance, making it even worse, and it wasn't that effective to begin with. So.
0: Yep. Uh, Last Demir card is Enter the God Eternals, two UUB, five mana total, Sorcery Rare. Enter the God Eternals deals four damage to target creature. You gain life equal to the damage dealt this way. Target player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard. Amass four. It's a lot of text.
1: This might just be like what Grixis was missing. This is a huge, huge, huge swing uh, that enables a lot of what your deck is seeking to do in the first place. Uh, Fueling your graveyard, if you so choose, is nice catching up on life. Very good. Putting the 4-4. It's nice to have our own ultimate infestation here in Magic. Uh, I've certainly played it enough in Hearthstone, <laughs> so I don't, I don't mind getting access to it here. But yeah, this seems like a very real card to me for a very specific type of deck, but it's going to be powerful in that deck for sure.
0: Yeah, I think this card is dope. I wrote an article on this last week where I think that this does a great job of closing the gap between midrange and aggro and making midrange actually like reasonable again. Uh, just because it is so, so good against the aggro decks. And obviously needing to uh, target a creature means that it is very likely going to be dead against pure control, but you don't necessarily have to main deck all of these copies. Uh, they might have things like Augur of bolus where it's still reasonable against them. And, you know, for the for the most part, midrange is starting at a deficit against control anyway, because they have things that only target creatures in their deck, which is like, you know, this, Lava Coil, whatever. That is just a common problem that mid-range has. I don't think that this creates any new problems. And realistically, this just makes it so, like you said, things like Krixis can actually exist and thrive. Like, I think this card is a game changer.
1: I'm right there with you. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how many copies decks want to be playing of this card, if some of them are going to be relegated to the sideboard because of the fail rate that it does have. A lot of that depends on how strong control remains, how strong like the Nexus decks remain. I think all of that is a fair question a question that Enter the God Eternals will have to answer before it just becomes a format staple. But it's it's doing a very specific role and it's doing it very well. And there's going to be a lot of decks interested in this.
0: Yeah, I'm excited because I see this and I get very excited about it, right? Because I like those mid-range decks and aggro has just constantly been like a thorn in my side and there haven't been like that great of sideboard options. And I think that this card goes a long way. And I really wonder if that's me being biased to some degree, or if this is actually going to pick up in the real world. But the fact that enough people have been talking about it makes me think that it is truly real and I don't just have blinders on, which is nice.
1: Uh, I think the games will tell you very quickly. A card like this, often you will cast it once and be like, oh, wait, my opponent can't win anymore. This is just backbreaking. Uh, and then you'll know from that point forward whether it's real or not.
0: It's, it's Siege Rhino
1: Flame Tongue, right? It does kind of feel that way. Yeah, it does a lot of different things.
0: And last gold card or multicolored card we have Huatli the Sun's Heart two H, where H is a green or white mana, uncommon, legendary Planeswalker Huatli seven starting loyalty. Static ability, each creature you control assigns combat damage equal to its toughness rather than its power. And minus three, you gain life equal to the greatest toughness among creatures you control. When did Huatli start caring about Toughness Matters?
1: Uh, I don't know. Huatli's gotten very strange in this incarnation. I like this template. I like the Toughness Matters things. Doran was a card I always loved back in the day. Uh, but this not unlocking defenders makes this a hard buy for me. I, I think that's often what those archetypes depend on. And then just as like a value engine to gain some life, that's not going to be very good. You already have a deck filled with high toughness creatures. You're blocking well. You're in a pretty safe spot. So I don't know exactly what this card is doing. It'll be fun to build around, but I feel like this is probably just a miss.
0: These these uncommon planeswalkers with statics, where like a lot of their power level is tied up in the static and then they just have a random minus that may or may not do something, feels kind of like what Hearthstone tried to do to create enchantment-like effects, where it's like they they put effects that you would normally see on enchantments on something like Fandrel, right? But in order for those things to live since there's direct attacking, they have to have like so much toughness. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what Huatli feels like to me, where it's just like seven loyalty is so much that I feel like, they realize that these things do just die. So like that is their way to make them feel more like enchantments is just make them like frustratingly hard to kill by attacking.
1: Yeah. And I guess mission achieved here, it's going to be tough to beat up Huatli, but I just don't think it's going to do that much on the battlefield while it's there. So just let it stay. Nobody cares about Huatli.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I I haven't looked at the Arcades decks enough to know if this like actually matters or if this is a thing that they needed or whatever. Like Realistically, those decks are not very good against things like Kaya's Wrath. And we have a lot of this stuff. And like you said, not unlocking defenders is probably also an issue. So I don't know. Someone will build a deck. It will not be me.
1: Yeah, I'm going to pass on this one, too.
0: On to the artifacts. We have Firemind Vessel. Uh, four generic mana for an uncommon artifact. This enters the battlefield tapped and you can tap it to add two mana of different colors.
1: So more ramp, always good. In worlds where artifacts matter, this can be an upgrade. I wrote a bunch about Tezzeret. Uh, Getting this card for free is fine. It is big if Karn targets it, that's fine, I guess. I, I, I don't know. I mean, like this is a little thin, but having ramp, in all colors if they want it, often unlock some interesting deck building possibilities. And we talked a lot about these finales. So if that's gonna work, uh, we're gonna need something like this to do the job. So it wouldn't surprise me if Fire Mind Vessel seems see some play in some very niche decks, but it's not like one of the most powerful versions of this effect we've ever seen.
0: So last card in onto the lands, we have Blast Zone. And this is a rare land that enters the battlefield with a charge counter on it. It taps to add colorless, You can pay X, X, and tap it to put X counters on it, and you can pay three, tap, and sack it to destroy each non-land permanent with CMC equal to the number of charge counters on blast zone. So, engineered explosives on a land? Mr. Amulet Guy, are you interested in this at all? Oh, yeah, I'm interested in this. Do you know
1: how incredibly powerful it is to put an effect like that on a land? It's kind of jaw-dropping, actually, and I'm surprised this card exists. It's not something I really anticipated seeing print. This might be even more meaningful for like legacy lands decks. Having options to deal with a bunch of one mana creatures could be worth a lot. Uh, But yeah, I think this is almost certainly going to be an inclusion in Amulet. With enough mana, you can deal with literally anything. So, And, And just it coming into play with a counter and immediately deploying it for three mana and dealing with one drops, that's worth a lot too. Wild card, wild, wild card. Not one I expected expect at all, uh, but certainly going to be part of many formats going forward.
0: Yeah, I think I'm I'm going to be surprised probably by the places where this shows up, and I'll just be like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, it might be more versatile than even we're looking at right now. Like I'm talking about an index that can effectively tutor it up, but maybe there's just colorless decks that can exist because of Blast Zone.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this gives colorless decks like Eldrazi and out to Snaring Bridge and stuff like that. So, I mean, that seems pretty yeah. sweet. Wow. Yeah, a lot of really niche
1: applications for decks that have a hard time with specific things and generally don't have access to answers because they're color deprived or they're just like these really weird combinations of 40 different lands and now there's outs. So uh, I I know all the lands players are very excited about this one. I think amulet players are cautiously optimistic, assuming it will slot somewhere. We'll see if it eats one of those main deck slots. I I think so. I think it's just good enough to be in the main deck. But if not, it'll certainly be a sideboard option and uh, we'll see play there.
0: Yeah, it's cool. Uh, It it seems like every couple sets basically... We get some colorless card over the last few years. It was like Hangerback Walker into Walking Ballista, and now this, where it's like, oh yeah, this is like way better than I thought it was.
1: Colorless decks are doing well for themselves. And that's cool. I think they're an interesting inclusion in magic. They do something very unique. Uh, I also think like players, for whatever reason, are very drawn to them. They like the idea of not having allegiance to any part of the color pie. So it's good to see these decks pushed a little bit.
0: Yep, absolutely. So that wraps up basically the rest of the War of the Spark previews. And next week, we'll be back with our top 10 lists for Standard and everything. And that'll be a fun show. That's going to be a hard one. It's It's been getting harder. Uh, so hard.
1: I know. I have no idea what my top 10 looks like right now. I'm already dreading doing this show because I'm just going to get yelled at again. I'm going to miss something.
0: I, I tried making one and... I think I have four that are probably locked, but that's about it.
1: Okay. I I can think of three off the top of my head. Whatever. We'll do the show next week. You'll see exactly where we're at. But uh, yeah, challenging show to be sure.
0: Yeah, but our question this week uh, comes from Benson Lai over in the Game Podcast Discord. And Benson asks, I'm trying to prepare for a week one MCQ event. How do you guys prepare and decide what deck to play for events going in blind? And I think... This is a good question and maybe a thing that we should probably talk about more, especially as we enter into like this new era of MCQ magic and everything. And yeah, specifically just week one events and what you're supposed to be doing. And I know that Brian, you're currently registered for some MCQs. I don't know if you're doing it like anything week one, but we'll certainly be talking about this.
1: It turns out we have work to do week one, Jerry. We are going to be in Richmond covering week one well, of the format. Week
0: two, maybe. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, I do think I have one in week two. And okay. I, I think going forward, we're going to talk a lot about MCQs here because with these back as part of the Magic landscape, I mean, if you think back to the way Magic content used to be, it was always focused on that PTQ season and evolving week to week. And certainly we're not going to lose sight of that. And I'm playing a bunch of them, so I definitely want to talk about them and and be on board. But week one presents its own set of questions, right? Because there's no real data to look look at. There's no metagame to look at. And it'll be interesting because we'll have arena deck lists, right? So that'll be producing some results. We'll see what's doing really well at the top of mythic. That'll inform people for sure. We have articles still. And that's what week one is really all about, is trying to pull in as much information as you possibly can. It's never more important to read than in week one, not only because of the information you're getting, but because you're seeing what other people are thinking. That's just as valuable as what's actually coming forth from those articles. It's just where are their heads at? What are they not accounting for? What weaknesses do their strategies have? And being aware of where the collective is at is exactly how to inform yourself for week one. In general, I like to default to very, very powerful things. Something like the small ball soul diviner deck you were talking about, not interested in it for week one. It takes too much tuning. You kind of need to get everything right. I want powerful effects. And that doesn't mean I'm necessarily leaning towards control or mid range or aggro. It's just my deck has to present something which is inherently difficult for my opponents to deal with and they may not be prepared for. So I would start by looking at the quote-unquote broken things. Look at the turn three kills. Look at the infinite combo. See if there's anything there. If not, you can certainly go with old standbys, see how they've improved. And a lot of people take that approach too. It's safe. Sultai is a good deck, right? Nothing's changing about that. It's got some upgrades. See if you can benefit from those upgrades. That's another approach. But I think ultimately, don't get too far from your comfort zone. Know your opinion of the metagame. And commit to it, commit hard to it and make a read and let that carry you to success.
0: I agree with most of that. I do think it's important to read articles, get on Twitter or in our Discord or whatever, see what people are talking about. Because for the most part, like people are going to have the same ideas a lot of the time. So if it's common consensus that, well, Mono is the best act by far, you know, you're probably going to see a decent amount of Mono because other people are going to read those opinions to you and be informed by them. But at the same time, I don't think that you should necessarily be making too hard of metagame reads, and I think that is basically the important thing that comes as a result of you just doing something powerful is that you don't necessarily have to make those reads, and you shouldn't be playing a deck that is uh, has like it's winning predicated on whether or not you're going to play against mono red four times in the tournament or whatever. You know, like you do just want to be playing something good, try and have answers for a lot of the different things that people can throw at you, the things that you think are going to show up and everything, but not focus too much on it. And, you know, we we talk about being proactive, and that's one of the reasons why that sort of strategy is just inherently good in Magic, is that you don't need to be prepared for everything. If you are playing like a mid-range creature deck or an aggro creature deck, like, you don't have to answer everything that your opponent's doing. You just don't. You know, you make them care about you, and hopefully your strategy is good enough that even if your opponent show up with a deck that is maybe a little bit better against you than you were expecting, that you still have a shot, you know? And I know that all of this just means that Brian is going to play Simic Nexus because it is powerful and it's a thing that uh, is very difficult to interact with and he's going to win a lot of game ones and stuff. I don't necessarily think that that's the best approach, but it is an approach. Look, I already
1: own these shiny nexus of fates. Why not get a lot of use out of them? No, I have, I have no idea what I'll play in week one. And I, I do try and be flexible. I should also clarify what I mean by reads. I think deck to deck reads are problematic. Like don't say, oh, if I play against mono white, I can't win and commit to that. I think you want to commit to what the format at large is capable of. And one of the clearest examples I've ever seen of this was going back to Battle for Zendikar. When that set was spoiled, every single person, every pundit every writer everyone talking about decks all of their removal was focused on sorcery speed and there was tons of what was the the sorcery speed hero's downfall that actually didn't ruinous end. tons of ruinous end everywhere just no real way to deal with things at an instant pace and that was extremely extremely exploitable going into week one of that format and it was in fact the scg event was won by red green landfall deck that was all in with pump spells and teamer battle rage and those type of format-wide failings, I do think you can identify at this stage. And if you perceive something like that, I would push really hard on it. There's no counter magic in the format. No one's giving any respect to control. Those type of things matter a lot. But making deck-to-deck reads, I agree it's problematic. And you can't really understand exactly what your opponents are going to do.
0: You know what, man? That that B for Z example is BS because. I played Brian DeMars in the Swiss and I beat him very easily. And then I taught him how to sideboard against me because he just asked me. And I was like, yeah, obviously I'll like talk shop with you, you know? And then he used that to beat me in top eight.
1: Just because you were the only other person prepared in that tournament doesn't negate the point. He cruised very easily (laughs) through that tournament. And the fact that you accounted for it doesn't make up for everyone else's failings.
0: No. And and that deck was obviously very popular at the Pro Tour too. And I think it did okay. Like maybe Paulo was the only one to top eight or something, but ham sandwich, et etc.
1: Right. Yeah. I think it actually had pretty medium results, but by that point the format had adapted and people had picked up surge of righteousness and things like that. So that's an example of the information gaps you can exploit really hard yes. in week one and they start to decline over time.
0: Yep. No, absolutely. And I, I agree with that. I do think that sometimes there is a thing to be found there when it's like, oh, the, the most powerful stuff is sorcery speed. And that is what everyone is putting in their decks. And this is a way you exploit it. But that sort of thing is not going to pop up every single time. So you don't necessarily need to like rack right. your brain trying to figure that stuff out out at the end of the day if you choose to play Saltai or Esper or Monored or Simic or Azorius or whatever like those are fine choices I think because yes we have a a new set with a bunch of new cards some of them are very powerful maybe some people are even going to have good decks week one and certainly by the time like week four rolls around like the format might look much different but for the most part you if you play something along the lines of Saltai are probably going to have like the most tuned deck in the room basically and Don't necessarily fall into the trap of like oh shiny new toy you know assuming that your goal is to win right Mm -hmm. but yeah also no I think that's that's good if if people who are in the Discord uh, who are listening to this do well I, I maybe I'll start another channel for this or something because I do want to kind of like shout out those people and do like a little bit of a better job recognizing those who are actually succeeding and what they're succeeding with and stuff so this is this is my official you know like making myself accountable to actually do this and, you know, go forward and do something with this. I'm not sure exactly what, but.
1: Yeah, that's a great idea. you know, we celebrate each other's successes a lot in the discord, uh, but it would be nice to get that out a little bit more and people deserve recognition for their accomplishments. I know Kanye best holding down number one mythic slot, a frequent contributor over in our discord oh, yeah. crushing it with mono red. So that's one, just one of the many successes we've seen this past week. Uh, Always nice to give people props when they're having really good results. Uh, I'm excited for this MCQ season, though. This is kind of like this style of week-to-week magic is how I fell in love with the game. Uh, There's good options within reasonable distances from me. Uh, I already have a road trip, an old school PTQ road trip planned. Me and Cedric are going to drive off to uh, Spokane and play some magic. So it it feels like old times. There's problems with old PTQs. There's going to be problems with new MCQs. I'm hearing all kinds of crazy varying costs. I, I, some people are paying $75 for an entry. All of mine were $30. So that just shows you how much variance there is between entry fees. And now I'm hearing a story of an event in California, which doesn't have a judge. And apparently they're not required to have a judge at their PTQ, which- How is that possible? I don't, I don't even know what to say about that. Like It makes my head explode. And I'm assuming- this is just an oversight and we'll get sorted out. I also heard that same PTQ has no prizes. They're just not offering prizes. So I don't know how much of this is true. I don't know how much of it is going to change before the event actually happens, but obviously stuff like this has to get taken care of. And I was hopeful that with the reintroduction this kind of setup stores would be a little bit more carefully monitored and there's a lot of talk about these i think they're called platinum stores or uh stores that really rise to the top of the wizards network i was hoping that these tournaments would be seemingly limited to those stores i don't know if that's the case given some of these stories i'm hearing but uh hopefully this all gets cleaned up going forward and we get back to just playing some good old-fashioned mcqs because they're a lot of fun and you get to know people in your area and you get to have a whole like social network that honestly has been missing from magic outside of the SCG tour for the most part for the last however many years it's been since we had the old PTQs. And I'm excited to get that back.
0: Yeah, same. I mean, I I spent a very large portion of my youth participating in that sort of PTQ scene. And it was really influential on me as a person, like getting out to new places and meeting new people and stuff like that. And, you know, just traveling and like even leaving my home state were things that I never would have done probably if not for magic. So definitely did a large part to shape me as a human and uh, unfortunately cannot participate in this stuff. But like if I am home and I have done this before, like I'll I'll definitely like go to a tournament and bird basically and just hang out because that that sort of stuff is just fun for me.
1: Yeah. And it's like you said, it's been missing. Uh, Don't, don't feel too sad. You don't get to participate yet. Um, Hopefully you never will have to again because it's a lot of work and uh, it's hard, but that's what we love about magic. We like the challenge. We like having something to strive for. uh, And I'm excited to have these events back on my plate again.
0: I don't know, man. When I got out of wizards, I was PTQing again because now they make everyone gold. When I came back, they only gave me one invite and I went to a PTQ in Spokane with Josh Rabbits and Taya Steele, and I went with them to a PTQ in Portland. And I think that was like the last ever PTQ too. So it was pretty sad, but those things are good times, man. I like it. They can be. Absolutely. Uh,
1: I, I think one of the important things about PTQs that I learned over the years is you have to make them work for you. Like There was a period where I was working in the bar and I would do a shift literally till four in the morning get in my car and drive to a PTQ, not having slept for, you know, 20 plus hours and get frustrated that I wasn't winning. It's like, what what did I think was gonna happen? I don't really know why I thought I could succeed in those scenarios. And occasionally I came close and maybe I even did win once or twice under those circumstances, but uh, it's it's not the best way, and if they don't fit into your life, there's other ways to participate in Magic Op. There's arena now, there's Magic Online PTQ. So don't burn yourself out chasing these things too hard. I think there's uh, a very real cost to going to a bunch of MCQs as they're now called, and you should always be cognizant of that.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Obviously, you know, don't don't kill yourself on the grind. Don't do that because mm-hmm. that will make it not fun, and it should be fun. You Agreed. know, you sh- you should be Agreed. having good times, making stories, and all that good stuff. But you know, can go either way.
1: Yep, I'm sure that our community over in the Discord will help everyone get it right, have a lot of fun, find a lot of success. Looking forward to it, to be sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sign us out. That's game.